I almost started to dance, but I don't do that very well, yeah. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be reading the first 12 verses of that chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2. So please turn in your Bibles, or you're allowed to use your cell phone if you have a Bible app to follow along as well. It's also up on the screen. It's amazing to think that God, of everything he wanted to tell us, chose what's in the Bible, the scriptures, and here's what he wants us to know and to hear for life and for service and following Jesus. And so Paul wrote to these Christians, and I guess God wanted us to hear this today. Let's give attention to God's word. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his glorious kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Lord God... renew our minds through the mercies that we've sung about today that come to us because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection force. Lord, remind us of your holiness and all your will and desires for your honor and glory today, we pray. In some way, amen. What was Jesus passionate about? All right, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to give up three minutes of my time. And I want you, with a neighbor, to talk about what was Jesus passionate about. Think about what you know about Jesus, and then explain why you think he was passionate about it, if you can remember an instant what, what he did to show that he was passionate about these things. So you have permission uh, to nudge your neighbor, not hard, and talk about what Jesus was passionate about. If you're a guest today and you're uncomfortable talking to people you don't know, you can just smile and say, I'll think about it myself. But otherwise, I want to hear some noise, so you have like two and a half minutes to talk about what was Jesus passionate about. Go ahead.
I'm going to interrupt, but I love to hear the noise. And I wish in a different setting we would have time to share some of our observations, but I'm not going to allow us to do that today. You shout them out. But let me, I'm glad you're thinking about that. Let me go to one instant that came to my mind, really because I was reading a book by John White called The Cost of Commitment. And he mentions the passions of Jesus. And in his book, John White wrote, about the instant, and you remember it. It's in Matthew 16. Maybe you remember it. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said all kinds of prophets. And then he asked, well, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter, because God revealed it to him, said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, the Son of God. And, and, and Jesus, you know, blessed him and said, this came from heaven, Peter, and I'm going to build my church based on that testimony of who I am and, and all those things. And that must have been a really highlight point for Peter to think. And it's just a few verses later that Jesus started, it says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter, the one who had just said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, said, Lord, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And what did Jesus do? You know, Peter was just trying to be a good friend. I know who you are, Jesus. This stuff couldn't happen to you. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. See, I think Jesus was wrestling with the troubles of going to the cross. We know he wrestled with it in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he was so passionate about doing the Father's will that he called Peter out and said, no, don't even put that idea in my head. You're against me if you're against me doing my Father's will. That's one example of Jesus being passionate about his Father's will. Isn't it interesting just to side like, when Peter had denied Jesus three times, do you notice how gently he restored him? Peter, do you love me? Confronted him. It was painful, but yet there he was gently restoring. Passionate. God is pursuing people. Jesus is pursuing people. So we go into part two of pursuing one another in nurturing relationships. John Spadafor last week did an amazing job introducing this whole idea. And, and, and that picture of the Trinity dancing, so to speak, united together, such a wonderful picture. That's the foundation of being united in Christ. God's together, the Holy Spirit the Son and Father, they don't ever get mad at each other and, and compete with one another. They're honoring and lifting up one another. They're serving. They're doing their job and serving the, for God's glory together. And that's pictured in the Trinity. And that's to be the picture of our marriages, of the two, husband and wife, becoming one. And then our family and, and then the marriage union is a picture of our union with Christ, the church, the bride of Christ. It's an amazing thing. So we have to strive, as John said, because Jesus prayed for it in John chapter 17. 
Let me just read those verses. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. God's plan through faith in Christ is to have his people made into one body. Jesus came and died to make people who were a part one. He came to tear down walls, not build walls between people. Jesus is our primary example of what it means to pursue nurturing relationships between God and then with one another. And then the apostles And we have said as a congregation that we believe that's a vital uh, value, that it's biblical, and that we need to model it and pursue it and, and make it happen. And that's why we're talking about it. So let's look at some practical things. The cost of nurturing relationships. Have your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Flip back a page. Well, at least in my Bible, it's back a page to chapter 1, verse 5. And... Paul wrote, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sakes. There it is. The cost of nurturing relationships in the body of Christ means we need to live together. You know how we lived among you. The stores have given us the clue, right? It's Advent. Jesus is came, Christmas. The word became flesh, and what did he do? He dwelt among us. He lived among us. He set up his tent and lived here. The God of glory became human and experienced our weakness and the temptations to save us. We are sinners living among sinners And we're called to stay apart from them, and yet at the same time, we're called to live with them and speak God's truth and live out his kindness and mercies before them and put it on them so that they may believe. We need to have a missionary mindset. We send missionaries to go to places we can't go whether it's overseas to foreign countries, they go there or or neighborhoods and communities maybe that we can't get to or don't want to go to, but we are happy to support them there. But we need to begin to have that same missionary mindset, beginning to learn the language, the culture, and beginning to build relationships so that the word of God, when God nudges us, here's your chance to speak the gospel or word about Christ and God. You know, it's interesting. uh, I got to keep moving. But it's amazing that we Christians are so good at gathering. And we've forgotten that our mission's to go and to be scattered. I read it a few weeks ago. I'll read it again. 
Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. On the cross, speaking of Jesus, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this is the cause he had come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in seclusion of the cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not endure this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among the roses and lilies, not with bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you were doing, who would ever have been spared? Martin Luther said that. Wow. So we have failed to obey Christ. We're good at gathering. And that gathering's important to be encouraged, to learn the word, to, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to, to fill yourself with courage, to live for God. To get, but we also need to go. Scattered now, gathering to encourage one another, and then there's this ultimate gathering to come when Jesus returns. The lost art of hospitality. John mentioned it last week. We have lots of opportunities to gather, maybe too many. We've lost the art of scattering. Just look at Jesus' life. Read the Gospels regularly and study his life and look at how he was hospitable even though he didn't have a home. How he welcomed people into his presence, into his life to hear him, to see him. You know, next week we have this opportunity to gather together. We're the, hos we're the hosts. So we need to be really hospitable and welcoming other people, making them feel really comfortable here. And we are the ones who are going to have to step out of not hanging together in our own little huddles, the people we know, and meet other people and introduce ourselves and maybe pray with them. And, and wouldn't it be amazing if I met somebody from another church that lived kind of near me in the same neighborhoods? And you started to pray for your neighborhood, and it, it, it expands beyond the borders of Grace Chapel and their local church. It begins to become a God's kingdom thing. Just think about that. Anyway, so one of the things that show the cost of nurturing relationships is you got to live together, spend time together. And then there's enduring opposition. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, we read, We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. What kind of crazy people get beaten, shackled, and imprisoned in Philippi, and upon their release go to another city, same culture, and, and still preach the gospel again. People who are convinced Jesus Christ saves and is the only one. That's people who are convinced, who do that. That sin has eternal consequences if people don't believe. 
You know, nobody taught lived better than Jesus, and a lot of people didn't like him. So don't be surprised when you live for Christ and love him and serve others that they reject your mercy because they don't. It's amazing how much we human beings don't like righteousness and holiness. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you open up your home and your heart to people that they're all going to receive you warmly. But in spite of that opposition, Jesus kept preaching it. Paul and his companions kept preaching it. The disciples kept preaching it. Those are the costs, some of the costs. What are the characteristics? Moving on. Thank you of being a Christ-centered, nurturing kind of person or congregation. Well, there's integrity involved. One commentator called it the absent, absence of lower motives. So in spite of strong opposition, Paul spoke to please God, not people. He did not use flattery, saying nice things to gain influence, verse 5. In verse 6, he writes, as an apostle, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you. There was no mask. I'm, I'm sorry, back to verse 5. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. So he wasn't being uh, underhanded. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men. We were just doing the job Jesus appointed us to do. We lived in Muncie, Pennsylvania. A lot of you don't know where that is. That's okay. Um, we, lived, we had well water. So a lot of times there would be people come to my door and say, we're taking a survey to see, to understand more about the quality of your well water. And after a while, I just started to say, you know what? What are you selling? Because it really wasn't a survey. They wanted to sell me a water treatment system. They weren't up front. We Christians, I don't know if any of you ever did a religious survey, but it used to be an evangelistic technique. You knock on doors and say, but your intention wasn't really a religious survey. You really wanted to get the gospel in, which isn't a bad motive. People got saved by that. But you see, it wasn't. People began to read through what we were up to. We weren't up front. We didn't really have a relationship where they knew we cared, and that's what's so important. David Kinnaman tells about an exit interview that a pastor did or a church congregation did with a high school graduate who had decided not to come back to their, their church anymore after she, after she had graduated from high school. And she was asked, what, well, what about your relationship with your youth pastor? I mean, you have a relationship with her, and, and there, isn't there a bond of commitment there? And, and she just looked at them and said, well, she gets paid to be my friend. It doesn't count. So what's my motive? People can see if, I'm, if they're a project or if you're just being kind to them because you love them because Jesus does. They can see through if you're just trying to grow your church because you need more people to meet your budget. They can see through it. I'm almost afraid to ask middle school and high school students, do you think I just do stuff because I get paid to? 
Wow, I don't know if I want to know the answer to that, but I hope it's evident that we love people and that we're doing it not for the sake of Grace Chapel or because we're in church today, so I have to be nice to you or at least act like I'm happy to see you. It's because we do. We evangelicals have gotten a reputation. If we've gotten a reputation for being against more things than we're for, if we've gotten a reputation for being intolerant and haters, what are we able to do to change that perception? It's unlikely that I'm ever going to be on a television talk show to explain my position or be interviewed by a radio host or whatever, but... Do my neighbors know what I'm about? Do they know the passions of my heart? Would you share life with them? Do neighbors, nice and not so nice, know what it means to love your enemy? Have they seen it in us? You have a homework assignment. Think about how and who God wants you to begin to love the way Jesus pursued you, pursued us, how we went village to village. Notice one other thing about the characteristics, Paul's family language, I call it. He called them brothers. He talked about being gentle, like it really literally means like a nursing mother. What a picture. Caring for a young infant. Then he talks about being a father. The word for encourage in the NIV, probably more exact, probably the ESV has it to exhort, a little bit stronger word, like, come on, daughter, come on, son. You know, encouraging them, but exhorting them. You can do this to comfort you. Yeah, you messed up, but we can do this to urge them on toward the glory, glorious things of God. Christ-centered relationships are centered on the gospel. Verse 8 is one of my favorite verses in Thessalonians. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Sharing the gospel. There's integrity. The integrity of Paul's ministry was reinforced by telling God's truth. The gospel brings joy, unity, and peace when it's received. It also brings a lot of turmoil. But Paul kept preaching it anyway because he knew in the end it would bring God glory. Not only sharing the gospel. I don't know why he chose to put that first, but maybe there's some priority there, but also sharing your life. And that means physical presence, and that means soul presence. Really being knit together with one another here in the body of Christ, but then daring to reach out to the not yet Christians that we don't know who is and who isn't going to believe, that we begin to be honest, real people before them. We need to be like a mom and dad for the well-being, not only of believers, but people who are not yet followers of Christ. I never appreciated my parents until I got older. And then you realized how much they give and gave and sacrificed so that you survived 
and maybe even thrived. And that's a picture of what we need to do for one another. And that's hard work. You know, it's one thing for me to stand up here and preach and teach. It's another thing to teach a Bible study or a small group and talk about what we ought to do. It's another thing to invite you into a, our home and have Leslie cook you a good meal because you don't want to eat what I cook. But to see us interact and see how I lose when I lose the game, whether it's Monopoly or it used to be basketball, how I reacted. You learn about who you are and you get to see. And when you fail and you mess up, it's neat to be able to confess that and say, I really misstepped there and I misbehaved and I wasn't obeying Christ. And just be honest with one another in life together. Help me with this brother or sister so I get over that bad way of living. Those are some of the characteristics, and let me just real quickly say, imitating Jesus, back to him. That's a lifelong project. I'll say it again, study Jesus' life regularly. I remember reading it as a child. I don't know why, except God's hand The Spirit was leading me. I remember reading the Gospels and thinking before I go to sleep in elementary school and thinking, oh, not another miracle, not another miracle. But like God was doing things in those miracles and it's taken a long time for me to begin to see what he was trying to tell me. The Master Plan of Evangelism, a book written by Robert Coleman, that's a lost treasure. People don't read it. I guess it's old. People were Jesus' method. Think about that. People are Jesus' method to reach the world. That means you and me, followers of Christ. He cared for the crowds, but he focused on a few. I can't save the world, but I have responsibility for the people who are around us. Then there's association. Jesus said, come and see. Come and follow me. Come watch me. And then there's time. Building into people takes time. Nurturing relationships, being a mom and a dad. You, you, you younger parents with toddlers, you know, when they start to crawl and walk, it's like 24-7. And when they sleep, you can finally take a breather. But then sometimes they're up before you want to be. They're looking at your eyes at 6 o'clock in the morning, and you want to sleep in at 7, and they're ready to go. It's, you're on. Well, that's what it's like in relationships in the body of Christ and to reach the lost. You're on. And we can only find strength in Christ to do that, to help one another, to rest, and to be ready. Imitating Christ, imitating Paul and his partners. We loved you so much. We toiled. We worked night and day. We weren't a burden to anyone. When you read about the apostles, do you ever get overwhelmed by like all the great stuff they did and say, I could never do that. That's not me. Can I tell you something? They were ordinary guys. Anybody remember that movie? No, it's too long ago. It was a Christian film. They must have had so much faith. Well, once in a while, but mostly they didn't. I mean, Peter walked on water, but he was sinking pretty fast, too. Okay? Just don't, don't 
Forget about that. How many times did Jesus look at them and say, oh, you of little faith, are you still so dull? Boys, I wonder if they got their feelings hurt. They were told so often the greatest serves, but they refused to serve, so Jesus had to wash their feet. They were arguing about being great and brave and loyal, but it was women at the cross. It was women going to the tomb to honor him. (laughs) They were just ordinary guys that believed and were changed through faith in Christ when the power of the Spirit came on them. And people, we have that same mercy, grace, and power through the Spirit. Take a deep breath and be glad that you don't have to build the kingdom of God. We're just citizens of the kingdom of God, given a task, and we just need to do it. Let me close with this. You can take another deep breath, too, because I'm almost done. How do you build nurturing relationships? Well, the motivating truth is the return of Jesus. It's the theme of First and Second Thessalonians. I won't take time to look at them, but if you look at the last words of each chapter, it has something to do with Jesus coming back. So when you think about Jesus coming back, don't get your calculators out. Okay, don't worry about the date. We know we don't, can't know that. Quit reading the headlines and saying it must be soon, although it could be. But don't read the headlines, because if they were reading the headlines when Rome was falling, all the Christians thought the world was coming apart then, and if you were in Nazi Germany and a believer and on all the bombs and what was going on, you would have thought the end of the world was coming, and it wasn't just yet. So believe Jesus is coming back. Let that motivate you to think about what we need to be doing. Believe he's coming, that he's Lord. Believe his kingdom is going to be glorious and amazing, and the, and the only place you're going to want to be. <laughs> Let me just look at one verse that talks about those end times. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope? What is our joy? Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? The motivating thing is Jesus is coming back and I want people to be with me in the kingdom. People are going to bring me joy when we're there and we realized all that labor that we thought was wasted that nobody was listening had an effect because God took it and used it to grow them and mature them and bring them to faith that is what's going to make it worth it. That's why Paul kept preaching even though he got beaten and harassed and stoned and shipwrecked. He kept going because he knew one day all his sacrifice, all the pain, all the letdowns that people do in our lives would be worth it when he saw Jesus because all of us would be glorified. Question today, how about us? Are you so convinced that when Jesus returns, it's going to be so grand that Anything you do here that hurts or puts, puts you out will be worth it a hundredfold times more.
We're at a crossroads, Grace Chapel congregation. Here we are. What does God want us to do? Be a disciple. Make disciples. Are you in a nurturing relationship? I don't care how old you are. You need somebody. You need a mom and a dad to comfort you and to exhort you. And if you're here today, I think everyone in this audience is old enough to begin to nurture somebody else, to begin to be a follower and help someone else follow. Study his teaching and believe it. Here Jesus is called to come and see and begin to nurture others. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Move in our hearts to become the people you want us to be. You made us to be. You created us to be. You've empowered us to be through the, your mercy, forgiveness, and grace. And the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.